As the train pulls into the station, apparently the audience became hysterical and started running for the exit, thinking that a train was bursting through the wall of the of the screening room. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Benedict Morrison, lecturer in film and literature at Exeter University. We're going to be talking about how transport is depicted in films from the 19th century right through to the present day. Benedict, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. And I can't help but asking, what's the greatest film ever made? Thomas, what an outrageous question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are so many contenders. I'm trying to think of one which neatly includes a train or no, another no mode of transport. No I know, but it would be convenient for <laughs> of this particular podcast. I mean, one of my very favorite directors is Hitchcock, and Hitchcock does wonderful things with transport. But possibly the greatest Hitchcock film is Vertigo. And I think that's a reasonable contender for the, the title of greatest film ever. When was Vertigo made? It was... 1958. One of the things that struck me is there's this sort of you know, sense, certainly in the transport world, of the golden age, the golden age of rail. There's also a golden age of film, I believe, and it feels like they might have coincided to an extent. Is that, is that right? Yes, I think that's entirely true. I mean, one of the things that we may explore is the way in which the history of, for example, train travel and the history of cinema to some extent run in parallel. Train is still a kind of relatively new form of transport when film starts to be thought of with the experiments, first of all, of Edward Mybridge in photography in the 1870s and then moving into the the experiments in what we really recognize as film in the 1890s. And then, as you say, golden age of Hollywood, 40s, 50s, yeah, probably does coincide with that golden age of travel. So 1890s, I, I, I don't think about film dating back to the 1890s. Well, um, can, I, can I go and see a film of a train in the, from the 1890s? Not only can you, but probably the most famous film from the 1890s is of a train. It is called The Train Arriving at a Station. Bear in mind that films at that point are very short. They tend to run for less than a minute. But one of the first films screened by the Lumiere brothers in France in 1895 was of a train arriving at a station. And there is a, a rather wonderful mythology which has risen up around that film, which is that as the audience, that first audience, who, of course, for them, film was an entirely new medium, the idea that these images could be projected, images which were to our 21st century eyes, they seem grainy and rather rudimentary. But to the late 19th century eyes, these images had an extraordinary verisimilitude. As the train pulls into the station, apparently the audience became hysterical and started running for the exit, thinking that a train was bursting through the wall of the, of the screening room. Now, apparently this has been exaggerated somewhat. But nevertheless, there was a real commitment in those very early experimental days to capturing images of interesting motion. That, of course, was what film could provide, which photography couldn't, still photography couldn't. And so objects that moved interestingly were the most interesting objects to record. And, of course, that includes trains. 
Yeah, there's this sort of fascinating sense, isn't there, about these two brand new technologies growing in parallel to each other and thinking back to how it must have seemed in those days, you know, the, the miracle of transport, the fact that you know, a handful of generations ago, people would still have known people for whom you know, dis distances of over 10 miles were almost unattainable. And then suddenly this parallel, extraordinary innovation of being able to record moving images. I, I've never really thought about the way those two things came together. Absolutely. And, you know, both both uh, both forms are committed to ideas of communication. And as you say, covering spaces and and taking transporting the viewer in the case of film or the passenger in the case of transport to places that they would simply have been inaccessible to them before. Indeed, one of the most popular forms of film uh, in the early 20th century were were films where the camera was very straightforwardly strapped to the front of a moving vehicle, often a train, and the audience simply got a spectacular view as that train passed through the countryside. They would see places that they would otherwise be unable to see. And indeed, that tradition continues now. There was uh, a, a film made uh, only a few years ago where a train journey across New Zealand was filmed in that way to give uh, viewers across the world a, a glimpse of that extraordinary landscape. Once again, train technology and film technology working cooperatively in order to transport the viewer. And technology continues to be used in that way nowadays. But the new things, I want, well, I, I love the, the Retische Bahn um, in, in, in Switzerland, um, in Graubünden. Um, they use um, Google Street View. So you can, you can click your way through some of the most spectacular railways on earth, including you know, the, the, the highest railway station above sea level in Europe, um, and you know, spectacular viaducts that, that curve loop-the-loops, um, all on Google Street View. So as soon as a new technology is found, we want to use it to travel to exotic places that we would otherwise not be able to see. Absolutely. So we've got this sense of these two new technologies emerging in parallel. And then, as, as we said earlier, there's this sense they, they kind of peak together. Is that right? I mean, I suppose it depends, at least with regard to film, who you're speaking to. There will be those who are very committed to the historical narrative, which insists, as we suggested earlier, that there is a golden age and that that golden age is associated with the real peak of the Hollywood studio system. There are other people who associate the Hollywood studio system with a certain, a certain commitment to conventionality, which has since then been interrupted, interrogated, even discarded, and that actually cinema has continued to flourish through a series of golden ages since. So it, so it depends on the particular history that you're reading. But yes, I think that there certainly is an argument that uh, that, that mid-20th century moment was a, a moment when cinema was particularly important. Part of the reason for that, part of the reason for its cultural significance was the fact that uh, that television later increasingly, and then, of course, subsequently, the internet and online platforms increasingly threatened cinema's monopoly. And actually, in a film such as the Ealing comedy, The Tipfield Thunderbolt, made in 1953, you see an interesting kind of parallel between the, the development of cinema and the development of of train technology, where the, the the narrative of the film is about a small village which has a, a rather quaint little branch line, um, and the branch line is threatened with closure, so the villagers decide that they will take it over and run it themselves. They are told by the authorities that they must run it at a loss, but they are allowed to, to have a trial period to see whether they can run it. And the big threat to this is the local bus company. The bus company is, I mean, they are painted as 
all out baddies in the film because they are determined that this branch line will not succeed. And to some extent, the film is not only a rather nostalgic, quaint account of the changing way that humans are traveling within Britain, but also the viewing habits of those people as television increasingly threatens the prominence of cinema. So I suppose in that sense, yes, there is a, a sense that the golden age of train travel particularly does coincide with the golden age of cinema. I'm so glad that we mentioned the Titfield Thunderbolt. I absolutely love it. I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen it, but if they haven't, then they must immediately find it. I'm sure it's available to stream somewhere. They must immediately find it and watch it because it's absolutely wonderful. Of course they must. And they must not stop there. Ealing comedies and indeed Ealing dramas regularly, routinely explore various forms of transport particularly trains, perhaps, but not trains only. The Lady Killers, for example, is another wonderful train film. Yeah, I've got the, the, those wonderful, grainy, dark images. You, you, if, you, if you visit sort of King's Cross or St Pancras now and the sort of the light and the glass and the shyness, you, we, this sense of golden age of, of, of rail travel you know, very much exists as well. And actually, if you, if you visit King's Cross or St Pancras now and you, you can get on a train that travels at nearly 200 miles now to another part of the continent, and more people are travelling by train than, 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 than ever before, you know, pre-COVID that is. But there is very much this sense. But if you if you look at the Lady Killers, you get you get this very different sense of, of, of rail travel as almost something something dark and sinister. Absolutely. Oh yeah, the film is not a celebration of train travel. Uh, it, it is, as you say, it's using the, the kind of the Gothic spaces of St Pancras, the architecture, to to produce a, a as you say a rather sinister macabre effect. The trains are fundamentally there as a means of disposing of the 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 increasing number of corpses i'm rather i mean i'm interested in something you said about the tipfield thunderbolt earlier and this sense of the, the bus as the enemy of the train because certainly one of you know as, as someone who has worked across both trains and buses throughout my career i'm, I'm passionate about the the good that bus can bring but there is often this sense of train for people like us and bus for people like them and is that something that you see through cinema as well or not yeah, that's that's very interesting. And uh, yes, I mean, the, the the cinema has generally rather neglected buses, I think, certainly by comparison with trains. I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think that while trains are difficult to film in, they are easier to film in than buses are. There is a, a greater dramatic potential. Characters can move around trains in easier ways than they can in buses. Compartments and carriages are useful for siphoning off different parts of the uh, the dramatic action. So I think there are there are kind of non-sociological reasons for, for cinema's greater commitment to trains. But I think trains are also associated with a greater sense of glamour, a greater sense... I mean, you can't imagine Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint in North by Northwest getting together on a bus. You know, it, somehow our cultural understanding of what buses connote would not allow that. Whereas in the first-class compartments of a train that's perfectly plausible and certainly that sense of glamour feels to me that something that comes across from that era of film I mean, if you think about brief encounter you know, that that had to be at a train station didn't it is, is that right is is transport normally seen as glamorous um from that era or there are there other other counterfactuals other other different examples I think there are different examples. I'll come back to the, the glamour in a moment because I think that's hugely important. But transport, including trains, are also associated with calamity and disaster. And 
chaos, the, the disaster film, which is often predicated on some sort of journey by some means or other of transport, they begin very early. So, so that is established by that point. But I would say that, generally speaking, you're right. In that, that post-war period in the 1940s, certainly in British cinema, I think there is a concentration on the, on the idea of trains, particularly as glamorous. And I think that there are, there are all sorts of reasons for this. And Brief Encounter is a fascinating example. Of course, most of Brief Encounter is actually not set on the train, but rather at the train station. And train stations are interesting places because they're, they're kind of non-places. They are between places, as indeed are trains. And so as a result, this, this brief encounter, this passing of two people through each other's lives in these moments, these intense moments of passionate uh, intersection, that, that works extremely well in a train station. But thinking for a moment about the scenes on the train itself with Celia Johnson as she's, uh, she's traveling home after seeing Alec, played by Trevor Howard, one of the things that it throws up is the way in which not only is the train a glamorous space, but it's also a fantasy space. Trains are not only uh, interesting because they are associated with the the luxury, luxurious uh, means of traveling around to exciting places, but also because when you're in a train, this applies to buses as well, I suppose, but particularly on trains, you're surrounded by screens. Those screens are the windows. There's a wonderful moment in another film, an earlier Hollywood film um, called uh, Possessed, where Joan Crawford's character watches a train pass slowly by her and sees little glimpses of life through the windows of the train. And for a moment, she becomes a cinema viewer. She becomes somebody who is watching life unfold in these flickering, slightly distorted images as they, as they pass before her eyes in a way which is similar to those who are sitting in the cinema watching Joan Crawford on the big screen. And returning to Brief Encounter, Laura, as she's traveling home, has a, a fantasy image of herself dancing with Alec in this glorious romantic sequence, which she effectively sees projected onto the screen of the train window. So the train, as a space which we can, we can look out through the window, we can see this unfolding dramatic landscape and then map onto that landscape our own particular fantasies, our excitement about our journey, our memories of where we've traveled from, that becomes a kind of proxy for the cinema experience itself. That's absolutely fascinating. My father was a, primarily a, a novelist, but he, he also um, was a, a screenplay writer on occasion. And he wrote a film that was then, a, a scene of which was, was filmed on the London Underground. They, they hired the Aldwych branch of the Piccadilly line, which is generally underused. And so they could get a, get a train for a, a period of time. And in that, in that scene, um, the, the, the commuters in the carriage subsequently turned out to be made of porcelain and they, 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 they toppled off their seats and smashed on the floor of the carriage. And you felt that that, that, that conceit needed that, that, that non-place that you describe. Yes. And I think the underground is, is particularly good for that kind of non-space because it, it marries together something which feels so familiar and so everyday for so many people. You know, we don't think about it as we go down the stairs onto the tube. It's, a, it's an extraordinarily everyday activity. But at the same time, those murky tunnels, 
those uh, those spaces, particularly between stations, which don't really exist, um, they can become a, a, an extraordinary space for mapping all sorts of narratives about human fear or human excitement or tension or whatever. It's no wonder to me that one of the most effective black and white early Doctor Who stories is set almost entirely in the network of underground tunnels in which, rather implausibly perhaps, robot Yeti are, are marauding and killing people with killer web. It sounds awful, but actually it's glorious because the uncanny effect of seeing something which feels absolutely everyday, Covent Garden tube station, what could be more ordinary, but mapped onto it the potential which these dark, shadowy spaces uh, represent, I think is hugely effective. So we've got this sense then of the, we're in mid-century, mid-20th century, we've got this sense of transport primarily primarily trains as being glamorous uh, but also sinister um for every Cary grant we've also got the the gothicism of of of, of the lady killers but bring us up to date how are trains buses how's transport seen today by a contemporary film audience you know i i think it's it's surprising really in some ways how little has changed i think that if you watch any period drama um, which is committed largely to painting a nostalgic impression of glamorous life in the late 19th or 20th century, it will almost certainly feature at some point a steam engine. It will also feature vintage cars and maybe some kind of beautiful image of uh, of, of long um, intercontinental travel by ship and so on. It will really commit to... Uh, to portraying this idea that transport was really one of the ways that that people experienced um, luxury and and glamour, something like um, the the new Netflix film of Rebecca really capitalizes on this idea that the way people travel as well as the way people dress and the way people speak and the way people eat and the houses they live in. The way people travel communicates something about the splendor of their life. Of course, this is, this is an almost irresponsibly inaccurate depiction of history in all sorts of ways, and it misses out so many people. Um, the, the train travel we see in those films tends to be first class. It tends to be quite opulent and comfortable, as opposed to those many people who are traveling in ways which are infinitely less comfortable. An interesting counterpoint, I suppose, would be something like Gentleman Jack, which was a BBC series based on the Diaries of Anne Lister, which was shown on the BBC last year. In that, transport is associated far more with discomfort. It's set in the early 19th century, and it's, there's a certain danger, there's a certain squalor, there's a certain discomfort. Long sequences of people being violently seasick as they, as they travel on cramped, uncomfortable ferries. Scenes of people um, taking handsome cabs and being uh, thrown around, having their bones properly rattled. A lot, of the, a lot of the veneer of glamour is stripped back there. But that's a series that is in all sorts of ways trying to complicate our relationship generally with period drama. But most, I would say, continue to commit to this idea that the train was absolutely a central and a glorious part of the lives of the rich and beautiful. And then alongside that, of course, we still have disaster films. And no one likes anything more than seeing trains come off rails or um, 
spaceships fly into um, each other. Whether we're talking about science fiction, whether we're talking about thrillers, whether we're talking about horror films, transport continues to play a key role in signifying danger and calamity. There's something interesting that's come out of that, because when we talked about the 1890s, film description of, of transport was very contemporary and about this, new, this intersection of two new technologies. And in, in the golden age, it was contemporary. Whereas when we start talking about transport as it's depicted today, all of the sort of the, the references that came to your mind straight first of all were looking back. They were contemporary references, but looking the the the, the, the depiction was of transport as it used to be. Is that is that is that how how it is now? Is that is transport now not seen as something of now, but something that we we think about from the past? Well, I think it's seen of now in the kind of disaster films that I was talking about. And with something um, like the various films that were inspired by uh, the 9-11 um, uh, hijack hijackings, I mean, something like that, I think, is very definitely relating to now. But it's not, it's not a kind of standard experience of travel now. I think, clearly... Television series and films set in London will still routinely have people traveling by tube, traveling by bus, traveling by train and so on. But I think I can think of fewer instances where the transport is really the crux of the narrative. It's functional rather than really a significant aspect of the aesthetic. There are more contemporary films which which have still really invested in the idea that that transport is significant. If you think of something like Sliding Doors, that uh, places tube travel quite centrally in this rather mystical idea that somebody's life can diverge and take two different forks. But it's hard, I think, to imagine something like the Tipfield Thunderbolt being made today. I struggled to think of many examples of transport being the star. I mean, in the way that, you know, in Brief Encounter, transport you know, was like a character in its own right in that film. And the only mm. example I could think of was actually a television series. And it was Gavin and Stacey, where the, the, the characters absolutely depend on this kind of umbilical link of the, of the train service between London and, and, and South Wales. Though, well, from the point of view of someone in, who, who loves transport, it was rather... It, it, it wasn't a particularly positive depiction. You know, it was officious ticket inspectors were a, a big butt of the joke. Absolutely. And in fact, in Gavin and Stacey, even there, you see that most of the journeys they make, I think I'm right in saying, are by car. Um, so while they do travel by train sometimes, there is, I think, an increasing commitment now by contemporary cinema to the car rather than to the train or the bus. So we have franchises like Fast and Furious. We have uh, films like Mad Max and so on, where there is a real commitment to this. And I... I think there is, to some extent, a kind of process of, of privatization of narrative, as it were, looking at the exceptional individual in an enclosed, remote, removed space, and the car serves that narrative purpose better than the train. I think this is terribly sad. I think that the dramatic possibilities of people coming together in a train are far more interesting and rich than the dramatic possibilities of people in separate cars simply driving alongside each other. And I hope very much that we may see a return. I mean, it is interesting that there have been, and again, this, this goes back to your idea of, of the, the investment in period images of transport. But for example, the, the two recent Kenneth Branagh, Agatha Christie remakes have been of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, in both of which a particular form of transport, a train and then a, a Nile steamer, 
are hugely important, not just as a part of the backdrop, but actually as a, as a fundamental symbol at the, at the very center of the, the narrative. So I hope that there may be some signs that there will be a reinvestment in it, particularly, as you say, as people are traveling increasingly by train again, that there may be a reinvestment in it. Train is wonderful for film. Yeah, we talked earlier about how how trains and stations have this ability to be in between places. They're nowhere, but people can come together and meet in them. So if if, if we're not using them for that purpose anymore, has, what, what's usurped them? What takes that role in films now that trains and stations don't seem to be given that task anymore? Well, I mean, those those between spaces, I mean, you can find them in all sorts of in all sorts of ways. I mean, domestically, you might find them, for example, on a staircase. Uh, So there are there are ways of generating alternative between spaces. But as I said earlier, I think the car is increasingly dominant and or maybe not increasingly. Maybe maybe it's dominant is waning now, beginning to wane. But I think it has over the last few years dominated. And the car represents another form of between space, one that is neither quite public nor quite private, one that is ne- neither entirely moving nor entirely still. There is a sense that the, the car is also a between space. But it's a between space which you tend to, to inhabit in, a, in entire isolation. One of the features, for example, of murder, murder on the Orient Express is the idea that the train, like the American household in the 1930s, is a place where people of all classes, all nationalities, all backgrounds and types may conceivably converge. And so I think to answer your question, to some extent, that has been lost a little in, um, in more contemporary film culture. But it's ripe for rediscovery. And you, you use the A word there, American. And of course, you know, I assume that American culture is hugely dominant in film and certainly in transport. America led the car revolution. LA um, used to have this extraordinary interurban tram network with, 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 with not just a, a city tram network as, as cities like London had, but these, these long distance lines that snaked out of the city and connected all the adjacent towns. Of course, all that got ripped up. So is, is part of the reason why why transport has been has been cast out from the world of film because the world of film is so dominated by Americans. Yes, I, I think there's a there's a lot in that, and certainly British film culture is very dominated by America, either in the form of American films themselves or British films that are desperately trying to be as like American films as possible, so that Americans will want to watch them. This, of course, may well be very different in other parts of the world and in other film industries. For example, I don't know enough about Indian film, which is, in terms simply of the amount of production, is the most significant film industry in the world. It may well be there that that trains occupy a different different position. The Bollywood films that I do know, trains often feature quite prominently, including in fairly contemporary films. So it may be that, that films that we're just not necessarily getting here, or are not getting widespread attention here, do continue to be committed to that. But I think you're absolutely right. America's America's increasing over the last few decades, it's, it's increasing lack of investment in, in uh, railway and it's increasing investment in road instead, I think, is reflected in, in film. 
it may be too early to say this, but I mean, as, as we see a sort of shift in global hegemony from America to China, um, you know, China's built you know, over 10,000 miles of high-speed rail. It's got this extraordinary startup called Didi that does you know, Uber-style um, taxis, but also um, long-distance buses. You know, are, do, you, do you think we'll start to see a, a change in film culture if the center of gravity moves to China, if indeed it does? Yes, certainly. And I think that Asian cinema has shown more in this country now than it than it has been in the past, including Chinese cinema. So, yeah, I think that we may well. I mean, it's interesting that in the in the 1940s and 1950s, one of the reasons that that trains became such a feature of European cinema was because they featured very prominently in a number of Japanese films, which were, for example, the films of Ozu, such as Tokyo Story, which then did very well in Europe in film festivals and so on. And people recognized that that trains had a particular kind of aesthetic appeal and a particular dramatic potential. So there's absolutely no reason to suppose that once again, we shouldn't see the the slow effect on European and possibly North American filmmaking, as you say, as a result of of trends in Chinese cinema. Listeners to the, the Freewheeling podcast tend to be people who care about or, or run transport businesses. From from the way that film currently depicts trains, buses, or, or doesn't, you know, what lessons do you think we we should be taking from that in terms of what we, you know, we do differently in our day-to-day jobs? Well... I think it's a very interesting question, and and part of me almost wants to refuse to answer because, of course, I wouldn't presume to give advice to people who know far better than I are what their customers want. But I I think it's interesting, for example, that regularly when I'm when I'm waiting in uh, on train platforms, I notice adverts. Uh, I think I think they're adverts for Great Western, but you may correct me if I'm wrong. Which use the Enid Blyton famous five stories to advertise um, their particular network. And I think that's interesting, that idea that um, that using a nostalgic image that many will associate with their childhood, using an image which is associated with adventure, but a kind of wholesome adventure, not the kind of adventure where your train is going to be thrown off the rails. That would be a terrible, calam- calamitous advertising choice, um, but, but rather an exciting adventure where we'll all be home in time for tea and a certain a certain kind of glamorous appeal. I think that these things really do make a difference. I think that as far as possible, if there could be some recapturing of this sense that to travel by train is to take some glorious, luxurious, comfortable trip down memory lane into a fantasy space in which in which the, the kind of the, the the difficulties and the pressures of of everyday urban life are suspended for a moment, and you can sit back. And imagine yourself about to begin your frolicking adventure with Eva Marie Saint. I think that that, that seems to me to be a, 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 good, to, a good direction of travel for, um, for, uh, for these companies. That's difficult to realize, but I think it would be, it would certainly encourage me to travel by train more. Difficult to realize, but a great challenge. Thank you very much for setting it for us. Before we wrap up, Give us. We'll put them in the. We'll put them in the show notes um, so people can can go through and have a look and click click through to them. What are the absolute must see films? What are the films that anyone who's listened to this needs to go away and find out how to stream straight away and then watch them? I think you must see Nightmare. Nightmare from nineteen thirty six. It's the kind of film which many people would resist seeing because it's from nineteen thirty six. 
but it's a, a kind of documentary made by the GPO with a with an extraordinary account of the way in which letters were were transported um, up to Scotland through England overnight by train, and much of the film is set to the music of Benjamin Britten and the words of W. H. Auden, and it captures it captures an extraordinary sense of that combination, which to some extent we've been talking about today, of the everyday, the practical, the urgent need for this mail to be transported to Scotland, but also the romantic. The idea that fundamentally train travel and film are both about rhythm and about movement and about fantasy. And that perfect combination is just heady. So I absolutely recommend that. A few of the films that we've talked about today, The Titfield Thunderbolt, The Lady Killers, Kind Hearts and Coronets, which doesn't particularly feature trains, but has various other forms of transport, including a a cycling enthusiast, for example. Those are wonderful evening films that I would absolutely recommend. A number of Hitchcock films must be seen. The Lady Vanishes. Anyone who has not seen The Lady Vanishes has denied themselves one of life's enormous pleasures. And that really could only happen on on a train. And the proof of that is the fact that a number of people have tried to remake it on various other forms of transport, and it has always been a woeful misstep. So I wholeheartedly recommend those. Coming a little bit more uh, up to date, there's a, a very good thriller set on the New York subway system called The Taking of Pelham 123. Now, you must be warned, do not watch the remake with Denzel Washington. You must watch the 1970s original. And it is, it is a glorious slice of what we were talking about earlier with regard to the underground, something which feels extraordinarily every day and yet contains that little frisson of energy as you become aware of those shadowy spaces in which danger lurks. Wonderful. What a list. Thank you very much. We've covered absolutely everything I wanted to talk about. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us that's my absolute pleasure thank you dr benedict morrison thank you very much that concludes the freewheeling podcast this week thank you very much for listening next week i'm joined by river tamor beg the founder of hack partners if you have a few idle minutes now and are wondering what to do with them why not give us a quick rate or review we're a new podcast and would love your support i'd also love to hear your feedback you can drop me an email at thomas at thomasableman.com or you can find me on the social channels at Thomas Abelman. What did you like? What don't you like? Who would you like me to be talking to next? I'd love to hear from you. But in the meantime, thank you very much and see you next week.